welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're going to chat about my campaign that I just recently launched called Cities of Venus. In today's episode, I'm going to do a deep dive, getting as transparent as humanly possible about what worked, what didn't, and how we were able to achieve the numbers that we achieved. So let's get started. First and foremost, I want to thank each and every one of you that has been part of this podcast, whether you've been one of the over 200 and some odd guests that we've had, uh, Mike Bruner, uh, the producer and one of the original creators of the podcast, Joe Slack, one of the uh, additional hosts we have on the podcast, or just any number of the people that I've asked for advice, either on or off the air. I want to thank you so much for helping me get to the point that I've got to today. For those who don't know, uh, I also have a company called Tin Robot Games, and this company's now been running for about five years. Our first campaign was on a game called Tanks But No Thanks. That was in 2018. Since then, we've launched five Kickstarter campaigns that have funded and delivered on time. We've got seven games that have made it to the market, and we have two games that are on the way. One game is called Catnip Auction House, which is on pre-order right now through our website, Tin Robot Games. That starts delivering in June at the end of this month. And the other game that we have was on Kickstarter recently and is called Cities of Venus. And in this episode, I thought I would take a chance to just go through this campaign. What did we do? How did we approach it? What did we do differently this time than in other campaigns? I've got asked this a lot over the past uh, two weeks and uh, I thought it'd make a great episode just to get into it. So here we go. For starters... Going into this campaign, we had a very specific objective, and that objective was to make this the large, obviously the largest campaign we could, but very specifically, we wanted this to be a six-figure campaign. Six figures in the local currency, we wanted to have at least a thousand backers, and we wanted to hopefully hit six figures US. The ultimate numbers we reached was $138,700 in local currency, Canadian dollars, which translates to about a hundred and I think three and a half thousand dollars US. So we hit the six figures and about 1300 backers. So we were able to achieve our, our backer number that we wanted. Now you might ask yourself why, you know, why these specific numbers? Wouldn't you just be happy funding whatever you could? And the answer is, yeah, we are happy anytime we can fund a campaign, but specifically for this one, it was a culmination of all the learnings we had up until this point. You see, board game design and publishing is just kind of a side hustle for me. It's a hobby. I have a day job and this is something I do in my evenings and on weekends. And it's something I love just like everyone else in this industry. So because I have a day job, I've had the luxury of treating this as a learning. So every campaign we've launched up until this point has been about what can we try? What can we experiment with? And ultimately, if we can just break even, then we've won right? As long as we don't lose money, that's kind of been the objective for each of our campaigns up until this point. This campaign, obviously we wanted to count and being the culmination of all these learnings, we want to make sure that we could actually make some money on this campaign. And this objective that I set for ourselves was uh, really from two, two perspectives. One was confirmation 
in my mind, if I could hit that six-figure number, it was confirmation that our learnings were actually correct, that our approach was correct, our strategy going into this campaign was correct. The second thing was the credibility in the industry. And you might say, well, wouldn't you just have credibility if you launched a campaign and it funded? That's true. But I'll give you a specific example we had with some of the reviews that we did. Now, we sent out our games to a ton of reviewers. Uh, and one learning I've had from prior campaigns in the past where I've spent money on preview videos. And the difference between a preview and a review video is a preview video is you pay the person. They're going to give an overview of your game. They're going to say nice stuff about it. And uh, then you've got a nice video that goes out to hopefully someone that has a larger audience of their own. You can put on your Kickstarter page. And I've done that with prior campaigns. But to do that with more than one reviewer or one previewer, like with a decent size audience, you're looking at several thousand dollars. One thing I learned two campaigns ago was I had this kind of light bulb go off in my mind where I thought, well, what if I could convince my manufacturer to produce a small run, almost like a reviewer run of copies? So I did. And I reached out to my different manufacturers and I had a bunch of them quote out. And I said, contingent on this quote is you have to agree if you're going to get the job you have to be able to produce 100 reviewer copies of this game that I can use when I launch uh, on Kickstarter, that I can send it to reviewers for them to, to view the game. The benefit with this is I was able to get this into the hands of a lot of people with audiences. You're rolling the dice because you're going to get what you get, right? If they hate the game, they're going to tell people they hate the game. If they like it, they're going to tell people to like it. If they're neutral, they'll tell them they're neutral. But the benefit you get is that you have a large number of people across multiple channels seeing your game, right? You're getting this in front of a lot of people and there's the impression out there that this is something special, something big. So we made that decision on this particular campaign. Part of that is I'm constantly kind of scrubbing the internet to see what are the different reviewers saying because they don't they don't always send you, you know, a copy of their video. Most of them do, but some of them don't. You have to kind of find it. Part of that process I was able to get though was I was able to look at some of the content we got for free that we didn't even send people games. And these are typically people who are doing like weekly roundups, right? So they'll go and they'll say, hey, here's what's coming up on Kickstarter in the coming week. You know, Adam Singer is a really good one there uh, from uh, Board Game uh, Clutter. Or board, is it Shelf Clutter? I apologize if I butchered the name, but Adam Singer, great guy. Um, he's proactive. He says to people, hey, I'm doing a Kickstarter roundup this coming week. If you have a game, if send me some details so I actually understand what the game is about, I'll talk about it as part of my weekly roundup. I'm not going to review it. I'm not going to say it's great or anything like that. I'm just going to give kind of the facts of the game. And there's several content creators that do this. One of them was actually uh, Dice Tower, and I can't remember the name of the, the third one that did this weekly roundup. And my challenge I had was that two of them, and specifically the one with um, that did Dice Tower, I was used as an example, very, very honored to be covered, right? So the fact that they actually covered my game was amazing and they're very complimentary of how it looked on the page. And they thought, wow, this looks really interesting. And they had some fun and they're laughing and telling some jokes, which is really cool. But then at the end, uh, Tom Vassell says, okay, well, let me see what else these guys have done. So he clicks on your profile name and you can see your prior campaigns. And he looked at my last five campaigns and then he's like, oh, well, these guys have done smaller campaigns. You know, I see Nutty Squirrels, The Elkwood Forest. I see Hamsters versus Hippos. I don't see any euros here. I don't see any sci-fi and none of these campaigns uh, were large. I think the largest one we had was $38,500 in Ice Scrolls. So they look at it and they say, ooh, is this a, this, could this be a risk? And they usually use those words. They'll say, well, this might be a risk. I don't know, kind of buyer beware, do your, you know, they don't crap on it, but they'll say, you know, do your investigation. But had they clicked on that button and seen a six-figure campaign 
and seeing a euro that we launched and so forth, then there's that little bit of credibility that when I'm doing campaigns going forward and they continue to do these weekly roundups and so forth, they can say, oh, okay, Tinrobe, I think I've heard of these guys. Oh, I've seen these guys. They have done a larger campaign. It looks like they delivered. It looks like their backers are happy. This one looks like it's probably a safe bet if you're gonna back it. So that was kind of part of the objectives going in. Next, we wanted to make sure it was a game that was suited for Kickstarter. So there's a couple of things that have to be right for Kickstarter. One, the fact that we had a Euro going in, we knew was best set up to be successful. Uh, typically, games like Euros will do better. Games with minis and things like that will often do better on Kickstarter than, say, like a gateway game or like a card game and things like that. Your cost per acquisition with your consumers is about $17 US a person per pledge. So if you have a game that's only $25 and your $17 acquisition cost, you are losing a boatload of money if you're advertising, getting people into that campaign. So we knew that we had to be at a higher price point with this game. So we put together the most premium game we could. Premium components, uh, stitched neoprene mat in the box, minis, uh, tons and tons of cards, quad layer player boards, just just made it as uber premium as we could to have the maximum table presence so we could justify a higher price, which allowed us to then afford that acquisition cost of $17. Once we were in the position to be able to afford the acquisition cost for the consumer, then you start setting um, your ads and, and, and building news around your game. That started about a year ago. We started seeding out information on our game. Even when it was in the prototype stage, we do an unboxing. Hey, here's something that just came from... Uh, from Game Crafter, look at these these player boards, look at this neoprene mat. Hey, I didn't know they did neoprene mats. Isn't this cool? Those kind of videos do very, very well uh, in, in any kind of content creation. People love to kind of see the process. It helps them also see it as not just your game, but their game. They have a vested interest in seeing you succeed because they felt like they were part of that process and they want to cheer you on. So that was very important. We started seeding this out a good year in advance. In November of this year, I also started doing some pre-ads. And these ads was like $5 a day, right? Something small. And it was, again, just seeding out pictures of my game, trying different images to see which people clicked on. And it simply said, sign up uh, to learn more. Sign up here to learn more. And when choosing ads, there's so many different places you can do ads. You can do ads on banner ads. You can do Google ads. You can do TikTok ads. It seems to be, from my experience and others I've talked to in the industry, again, you're gonna have some people who might disagree with this, that meta ads seem to perform the best for Kickstarter campaigns specifically. And some of the advice I have from some of my colleagues in the industry was, and one specifically I'll call it is actually Tanner Yarrow from Yarrow Studios. He recently did Flip Die. He has a lot of innovations he's brought to the industry. Very, very smart guy. He's done very large campaigns. And he said, James, you got to get phone numbers. If you can get phone numbers, your conversion on those is going to be higher than even if you have an email. So in setting up the meta ads, I had put in signups, right? So lead generation saying, okay, uh, to learn more, give us your, your email, give us your phone number. Some people complain and said, there's no way in heck I'm going to give you my phone number. Why can't I just give you your email? Well, the reason I did that is that there's a lot of bots that will just auto sign up to email lists. And to get the best quality signups I could, I felt that if I also asked for the phone number, not only would I have that so I could text blast these people later on, but that I'd also have a, a stickier kind of lead. It'd be a higher quality lead. Somebody give them both those things and a bot's not going to give both those things to me that I know of. 
The other thing that um, I found was instead of doing a splash page, and you'll hear a lot of people in the industry saying, no, send your contacts and your ads to a splash page and have them sign up there because it'll be a higher quality lead. That is true. But I also find that when I'm asking for these phone numbers and these emails uh, in the same kind of form through Meta, it's less clicks through to get that information. And for me, uh, the quantity outweighed maybe any kind of quality degradation I would have gone by going with a splash page uh, process instead. So I did that. The next thing I did was I wanted to make sure that I had um, the right uh, marketing company help me with this. Now, up until really this year, pretty much every marketing company you work with, you're either hiring a company on retainer to help you with pre-marketing ads, but then those ads may or may not carry through during your campaign or they'll help you with some of your campaign ads. Crowdfunding Nerds is a great example of that. Andrew Lowen, very smart guys. Quite frankly, if you want to do some math on your game and find out what it could fund at, go to their website, Crowdfunding Nerds. they got a great template you can uh, fill out there and it'll give you an idea on what the zone should be for your funding. Jillop is another great one in the industry that generates a lot of revenue. Um, I went with Backerkit uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that Backerkit uh, now is running a beta where they'll do your pre-marketing ads as well. The benefit to them is they can track that person all the way through to the pledge. So if they're doing your pledge manager and they're doing your in-campaign ads, they can better track who they brought in versus you brought in on your own. Likewise, they fund up front. So they'll put their cash in to run those ads within reason. Um, and if they know that you have a good chance of funding, they'll do this and they'll agree to work with you. And then you pay them at the end of the campaign out of your Kickstarter funding. That takes an immense upfront burden off of you to put your focus on other things like other ways you're building your audience, upgrades and things you're going to do, uh, paying somebody to help you with design of your page and so forth. So for me, Backerkit was the group I went with. I had experience with them on Nutty Squirrels, The Open Forest. They did a good job there. And for me, I felt that um, they could do a great job on this one. And uh, you know, Chandler Copenhaver has been a good ally over the past number of years, even when I'm not using backer kit he's been giving great advice just as a buddy and uh they're a smart group of people and i really really appreciated working with them so they were who i used on this campaign um they started their pre-marking ads about a month before the campaign uh, launched in concert with that i was doing video ads again through meta lead gen and my ads i would do a video using my cell phone. So I did a kind of tabletop pan over the table, you know, kind of finishing up on my, the, the game box, put it into a cap cut on my cell phone, edit it together with some overlays, and then I uploaded that into Meta and ran my ads on those videos. And those videos performed very, very well. I think I had one person complain saying, hey, this would be a great ad if it wasn't filmed on a cell phone. Okay, but in some cases, I had an acquisition cost of less than a dollar a lead, which is just a very, very low number for a lead uh, in the industry. And uh, I was getting that for a good month, which was was amazing. So that was something I did there. The other thing I did is I tried to save pennies wherever I could. And one of the big things that I had done was it kind of, again, I would use Yarrow Studios as an example of this, is if you look at his campaigns, he's done several campaigns that have funded over a million dollars. And in those campaigns, the campaign video um, was just him doing skits with his friends, you know, and kind of thematically tied into the game. One, he's like dressed as a minotaur and things like this. And, you know, you can spend a lot of money doing a really slick video for your campaign. And certainly the temptation with a sci-fi game like this was to do that. But because I had these preview copies made, 
I had an actual copy of the game. So to me, I was thinking, wow, you know, I could either A, pay, and you're looking at probably $5,000 for a really good, you know, animated video for your, uh, for your Kickstarter campaign. Or I could take the physical copy I've actually had made and shoot that, <laughs> right? I have the actual game. Why do I need the CGI? And I actually have it physically here. People can see what they're going to get. So I did, uh, and I'll give a shout out to Analog Game Studios, Richard McCray. Uh, he gave me a good hint on uh, an animator he was using um, that was very cost effective to do like little 30 second clips. He used them a lot for like uh, doing the GIFs on the page and so forth. And I reached out to them and I had them uh, create kind of the launch video of just a rocket taking off from Earth and then showing the... Um, canister getting to uh, Venus and then the canister coming through the clouds. The whole sequence I think was like 15 seconds. And then from there I clip into all my pan shots with my cell phone of the table and then my voiceover. I just use my own voice. Then again, I use GarageBand and I use iMovie for my video clips. This is not super sophisticated software, but I create all that in there. That saved me thousands of dollars that I was able to, again, put into ad generation and things like that. Um, one thing that you'll find in the math and again, crowdfunding nerds, great podcast. And they talk a lot about this is that the math is the math and the math is very straightforward on campaigns, right? You're going to have, and I'll show this for people who are listening. I'll describe what we have here, but there's a website called kicktrack.com. So T R A Q. You can see any campaign that's ever been run on Kickstarter in this, uh, this website. And I'm showing right now the cities of Venus one. And what you can see is that there's a huge, huge funding kind of on the first day and then you've got kind of this bowl shape. And then in the last 72 hours, you see it swing back up. And here's the reality. Every campaign follows this pattern. Every single one. The only time you see mid-campaign bumps is if someone goes to like a convention and they're soliciting uh, pledges at like a convention or they've artificially uh, pumped in funds because they realize they're probably not going to make it and to get themselves over the goal line. There's nothing wrong with that. I did that on a pri- on my first campaign. We chose a funding goal that was too high. We'd already raised the funds we needed, quite frankly, to make the game. And we just pumped our own cash in to get us over the gold line and took that as a uh, as a learning. But that's when you see kind of a campaign kind of spike in the middle of the campaign. Every other campaign, the weeks crawl along in, in between kind of the first 72 hours and the last 72 hours. And people are constantly jumping ship. Almost like you got like a virus on the ship and people are kind of jumping overboard into the water because they don't want to get sick. You see the same thing in campaigns. You have people coming in and then you have two come in and one jump out. That's the kind of thing that will happen uh, during your mid-campaign. So don't spend a lot of money in the mid-campaign. And that's one thing we, we didn't want to do was spend a lot of money in the mid-campaign. So we had to set our strategy going in. So what was the strategy? Um, so one is knowing that the math is the math. Your first day dictates fairly accurately how you're probably going to finish your campaign. And the math typically goes roughly 40 to 50% of your first day of pledges is what you're going to do in your last 72 hours. And in between, you're going to kind of crawl along. So I created some projection models based on that data. And then the goal was to try to get that day one pledge as high as we possibly can. So then again, trigger those algorithms. So then we could predict how the campaign is going to end. And what I did for that was we set a day one incentive. And I've seen different incentives across different campaigns. Uh, I know Inside Up Games, one of their favorite ones they do is if you, uh, back on the, the first day, you get your name inside the box. That's yeah, pretty cool. For this campaign, we had a, it was a big campaign. So we did a mini first player marker. And the mini was actually a sculpt of like the arm from the, the city, a holding bay, grabbing a canister. And that's kind of the first player marker to go around the table. So we didn't want that someone 
got this and no one else could get it. So you could still buy this as an add-on for $10. But if you backed us in the first day, and we kind of call that the first 72 hours because with the way emails and timelines and things kind of spread out, we, we had that for 72 hours. But if you back in the first 72 hours, you got that for free. The reason we did that was A, spike that day one as big as you could. And secondly, is to make those pledges as sticky as possible. Now, what I mean by sticky is you want those pledges to stay, right? As I said earlier, people come and go in your campaign throughout the campaign. You'll see the same person jump in and out three, four times sometimes. There's no risk to stay in a campaign until the last day. You can jump out the last day. So people will jump out, kind of like window shop over a couple of weeks of what's coming on Kickstarter and sometimes and they'll jump back in. That impacts your algorithm. So you need to get that number as big as possible at the beginning. So I want to make those pledges sticky by making a kind of a fear of missing out. Like, so a bit of a FOMO, you know, if I don't back now, I'm going to miss this first player free marker. If I have back in day one, I'm a little bit hesitant to jump out now because if I do, I'm going to lose my place with that first player marker, right? So that's first and foremost, what we did. The second thing that we did was rather than doing uh, stretch goals, uh, which I think had their place five, six years ago. Like I think back then legitimately as people funded more, they could start doing more things, but it has changed in this industry, in my opinion, to be more of a, just something to keep the conversation going. And it looks something like this. You have your game designed, you have all the costing, everything worked out. You plan on making a premium, having spot UV varnish on the cover, inside lid, lid printing. Uh, you're planning on doing, you know, different types of things, thicker cards, linen finish. You're planning on doing all, all this anyways. But you strip that out of your campaign and you put in a stretch goal. Hey, if we hit $20,000, we're going to linen finish those cards. You know, if we hit $40,000, we're going to spot UV the box. If we hit $60,000, we're going to, you know, inside uh, print inside the box. The challenge with this is because most of these in what I'm seeing are things people would do anyway. Um, it becomes a case of if you don't get your numbers just right, you could be in a situation with where either A, you smash your target on day one, so you hit all your stretch goals on day one. Now you still have to create a conversation for the rest of your campaign. So now you gotta come up with even more stretch goals, right? That you didn't plan on creating for the balance of your campaign. Or on the flip side, which is even worse, you come way short of what your expectations were on day one. You have no chance of hitting some of these stretch goals. And these are things you are gonna put in your game anyway. So now you gotta come up with an excuse as to why you're including them in your game. Well, maybe we got better hey, we just all of a sudden negotiated with our with our factory and we're getting better pricing, so now we're going to include it at this lower level and things like that. I've done this on, on prior campaigns. For me, it's much better to be clear with people up front to say, we're going to give you the best possible game we can out of the gate. You get this game. You're getting the spot UV cover, you're getting linen finish, you're getting inside lid printing, you're getting all the bells and whistles. But what we're going to do is we're going to reveal some cool stuff throughout the campaign to keep the conversation going. So that's what we did. And in, in addition to that, we also created a story series called Chronicles of Venus, where we had the story and these little episodes that fall literally the steps in our game. Step one, you have the drop coming through the clouds. Step two, uh, an event happens. Step three, the sh shields get eroded and so forth. So we created a story for each of these steps. And uh, we seeded these out about every four or five days, again, to keep the conversation going. The second thing we did was uh, the big reveal was once a week, specifically on Tuesdays, because that's the day most people launch their campaigns. That's when most of the traffic comes in on a campaign. That's the one day that's the hot day of the week. So to get as much eyeballs back on our campaign as possible, we do a big reveal on that same day. A, gave us an, uh, an excuse to e-blast everybody, say, hey, there's something else we've just announced. Uh, 
And secondly, uh, people who are window shopping see some new news that happened on that campaign. So we did that. Um, the, you know, some of the, the feedback we had was, like one of the big reveals we had was uh, solo mode. So the first one we did on the first Tuesday was we're going to do a solo mode of this game. We had a draft in, in place. It wasn't finalized yet. We've actually contracted Joe Slack, who's the other host on this podcast, who's done a lot of um, solo mode games. Is a prolific uh, game designer. He's putting the final touches on our solo mode. and uh, But we held back announcing that. And even people are saying, are you guys doing a solo mode or not? What's going on? You know, if you did a solo mode, I would back today. These are the kind of things we'd hear. And it took everything in me possible not to just put the announcement out and say, hey guys, day two, we're doing a solo mode. We're going to do, you know, ink wash minis. We're going to do all these different things. I had to be disciplined and say, no, no, no. We're going to, re- we're going to reveal these once a week on Tuesday because that's going to drive traffic and it's going to give us a bump. And the first one was very deliberate because we knew solo mode is so big that we could then start hitting uh, Facebook groups and different groups and channels where people actually follow solo mode games and solo mode play and say, hey, check out our campaign. We've just launched a solo mode. We actually did see a, a nice little bump on that first Tuesday. And that was enough for us to take the math going into our campaign, uh, which is based on your email list and getting that email list up as big as you can. And, you know, for our campaign, we got up to 6,000 emails going in. We had, I think, 2,300 uh, people who signed up for the notify me uh, on launch button. So in combination, you can count on about 10% of that total audience to convert into backers. And I think according to CrowdOx, or not CrowdOx, I keep saying CrowdOx, crowdfunding nerds, uh, their math says that for every six backers you bring in, Kickstarter will bring in another four organically. So you run that math. I knew I was going to be at about $105,000 campaign going in. When we got that bump on, which we had our first day, after our first day, we knew, okay, now the math is closer to 115 to 120,000 based on day one pledges, right? That's why you need that day one to be as big as possible. The first Tuesday, when we had that mini bump with the solo mode, then the math changed because we had momentum and we could see the math again, putting through this predictive model. Okay, we're probably going to finish somewhere between 20, 120 and 130. Um, as part of that, then I had a little more gumption actually negotiating with our factory. And there's a couple things I negotiated. So we had three reveals that we had planned. One was solo mode on the first Tuesday. Second Tuesday was going to be a web app for keeping score. Ironically, I had some reviewers say, hey, these guys, I hope they have like some kind of scorekeeping pad in their in their, in their their box. We created an app on your phone. You can just scan the QR code in your book and it'll do all the, all the score adding for you. That was the second week. The third week was ink wash minis. We didn't plan a fourth week. Once we hit that first Tuesday and I was talking, I actually was talking with the plant saying, okay, guys, sharpen your pencil. This is going to be a bit bigger than we thought. And, um, you know, there's a couple of things I want to do here. They actually did sharpen their pencil and it, it worked out to be like 20 cents more a game, which in the grand scheme of things, I just ate it. I'm like, I'll, I'll eat that. Who cares? And it's to create these dual layer mini player boards. So we had quad layer boards as the main uh, city boards, but these mini two layer boards. So we added that as a fourth reveal in that fourth week again to keep the conversation going. And then these kind of chronicle story through it. The next big thing I did uh, through the campaign was, again, you got to keep the comments. Algorithms favor lots and lots of comments in your page. So we said, hey, you know, we're, we've our artwork represents about 60% of the variety of what we've sent out to the reviewers, which was true. And we had a lot more cards we were still working on and finishing the artwork because artwork takes a long time. Very talented Daniel Kuna did all the artwork for our game. 
Um, but we have more to do. And so I reached out and said, Hey, anybody that has an idea, no ideas or bad ideas for an event, for a cloud drop or something cool we could add, put it in the comments and the one, our favorite ones will give you a mention in our, in our book. So we'll name drop you in our, in our book when we launch the game and that create a whole bunch of people commenting, Hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And not only was it great content that we were actually added some, quite a few of these uh, to cards in our game, but it kept the conversation going, which is really important throughout the campaign. And you got to keep prompting people. Hey, and I even did another one. I summarized. I had one of my updates where I did, here's what I've heard so far. What else is there? There's got to be more. Right? Again, trying to prompt, keep people to get that conversation going. The last big thing that I did during this campaign was something I learned two campaigns ago on Kickstarter. And that was that lost backers aren't truly lost. And from my experience, just by asking, you can recover 10 to 15% of people that drop out of your campaign. You have people drop out of your campaign like crazy throughout your campaign. And you got that's the one emotional thing you got to get brace yourself for is you're going to have a ton of people drop their pledges throughout your campaign. The ones that hurt the most is when you hit a milestone and then something like when we hit our 100,000 marker, then somebody dropped their pledge right away. Then we went over 100,000 someone dropped their pledge right away. So you go through that kind of emotional turmoil. Um... But you can recover pledges and it's 10 to 15%. And it goes something like this. You see somebody drop their pledge. On the about day five, I started doing this. I went through all the drop pledges. So it took me about an hour and a half. There was like a hundred. And some of the uh, the messages to the people, you can kind of cut and paste and change the name. But it says something to the effect of, hey, I noticed you dropped your pledge. Um, your pledge is really important to us. Um by having your pledge as part of our campaign, it helps the algorithms. It helps bring in more people into the campaign and helps us raise even more funds, which can make us help us make this game even bigger than it is. There's no risk for you to stay in until the last day. You can literally drop your pledge anytime up until the campaign closes. There's no risk. Can you do me a favor? Can you come back in? And if they're one of the people that backed in the first 72 hours, I added in, if you jump back in, I'm still going to honor the fact that you were a day one backer and you'll still get your free first player mini the numbers on this campaign is roughly 12 percent of those people i reached out to came back and then every day i would do like maybe four or five people i'd reach out to saying that same thing hey love to have you come back and you varied up a little bit there was one person that was actually from my hometown that i put in a personal touch hey as a fellow fellow person from barry love your support and they're like oh my gosh i didn't realize you're local i always support local i'm back in right so very, very important. That was about $3,500 I recovered. That's free cash. That's cash that was just floating away. Imagine you're in one of those kind of, remember those game shows where the money's floating around and you're trying to grab it all? It's kind of like that. Grab the money. Don't let it fly away. I'm shocked at the number of colleagues I've talked to. I did a TikTok on this that said to me afterwards, I never do that. <laughs> I just assume they're gone. I had no idea you'd get them back. I'm going to start doing that going forward. It is literally cash that uh, doesn't have to leave your grasp. I was able to take those funds Again, negotiated with the factory even more and said, hey, the minis, I got an idea for these minis. These mold costs are crazy. It's $7,500 US. You got to do better. They're able to shave that by about $2,600 US in the last week of my campaign. And uh, between that and the money we saved by getting people back, which I considered found money, we did one more reveal that I added post-campaign finish. And again, it's this kind of a bit of the the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. And I again, you're always going to have people that are going to get mad. 
right? I had people like a whole rant of people in my campaign page on day one saying, this is ridiculous. You're doing even a first day incentive. That's crazy. Why don't you just be up front? You guys can afford it and give it to everybody, blah, 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 blah. Then you have the flip side. You have people saying, where's my stretch goals? I don't see any stretch goals. Like you're not going to make everybody happy and you have to accept that. And you just have to be as polite and thankful as possible and just try to get through it. And so although I had a couple people push back on this, when I had 48 hours left, I said, there's one more big reveal that's coming and it's after the campaign closes and it's only for people that backed a full copy of the game. So why would I do this? It certainly wasn't to make people upset. But I knew there was a number of people that had pledged a dollar and there was no risk for them to wait until the pledge manager came out in a couple months and up their pledge at that point to a full copy. There's there's no there's there's zero risk to do that, right? They're already in for a dollar, they're holding their place in the in the pledge manager. But by saying if you up it to a full pledge before the campaign ends, you're gonna get this this big reveal. And some people are mad or saying, well, what's the real what's the reveal? I want to know. If you're not in at this point, there's nothing I'm going to say is going to bring you in anyways. But if you're on the fence, this could be enough to push you up. And we had a number of people actually say, okay, I'm going to increase my pledge. So I did that in the last 48 hours and that pushed some people over the line to finalize their pledge. The big reveal we ended up doing was in a post campaign. And again, I was still running through the numbers on this. So I wasn't even fully sure I could even do it till literally two days after we closed the campaign. But we're giving the free mini to everybody. And... I had some people advise me not to do that for a couple of reasons. One, there's 300 and some odd people who paid for the mini. And those people are going to get that money back in the form of a credit towards shipping, right? So they paid for it. You're still going to get the mini, but you're not going to have to pay for it. You get that $10 back as part of a credit in, in the pledge manager. That was like $3,500 of, of profit gone in order to do that. The second group of people is worried about was the the people that backed in the first 72 hours to get that first that first player mini, the ones where I had to kind of make their pledge sticky. I didn't want people in that group to say, okay, well, next campaign James does, I know that first day incentive, he's just going to give to everybody anyway, so I'm not going to lock my pledge down the first day. So I need to still honor them and give them something that um, rewarded them for being there at the beginning and, and committing. So what we came up with is these cool uh like like classic kind of pilot wings you get like when you go to space or whatever you get your pilot wings so we've got a set of zinc alloy wings uh we call them the cities of venus presidential wings and it's got the cities of venus logo kind of uh etched into it like it's kind of raised and it's got like an enamel coating it looks super cool we're gonna have this as an add-on in our pledge manager but everybody who backed in the first 72 hours gets it for free okay so they get the mini for free and they get that for free the feedback so far from people and that announcement we sent out was that they're very happy and they felt that we handled that very well. And they're very pleased with, with how it's been handled in the outcome. So I'm glad we're able to do that. But again, it was an example of what I try to do in our campaigns is anywhere I can give back value. Don't try to lose money for the sake of losing money. And that's not the, that's not the point I'm trying to make here. But if there's, if you've gone beyond what you thought you would do, which we did, right? Um, it, it's okay to invest some of that back in into the people that were there for you and supported you because the next campaign they're going to remember that and they're going to be like oh yeah tin robot games that those are the guys that did that super cool game with uber premium components kept throwing stuff at us uh, without asking for you know more investment things like that 
always delivered on time. In fact, our goal is to deliver this in the summer of 2024. So one year from now, I think we can do it. That'll probably be three months early. That's my goal. Again, I have till October that year. So I want to have the, the hedge in there of extra time. But I'm going to do everything I can in my power to deliver early. I got a buddy always says, no one remembers an early campaign, but they always remember a late campaign, right? So I never want to be that guy at the late campaign. We haven't been late yet and we want to keep that track record. So those are the key learnings. That That's that's basically our campaign, kind of start to finish. Um, you know, when I'm interviewing guests on this podcast, uh, you know, I always ask them kind of what's next, what's coming up. And I'm going to tell you what's next for Tim Robot Games. But before I do that, what I want to say is that the support of all these backers on these Kickstarter campaigns that we've done has helped fund this podcast. We could not do this podcast without that funding. We don't ask for any kind of advertising dollars. Guests never have to pay to be on our podcast. This is free to any content creators. Anybody has anything to do with board games that we've had on this podcast, if you've been following, there's been a lot of people. They've been generous with their time. That's all I look for as payment is just give me your time. Give me 40 minutes of your time and uh, we're going to talk on air live. But I still, it's still costly to put this up. So things like this Kickstarter campaign helps fund it. Okay, so what's next for Tin Robot Games? As a company, my goal is to continue to grow and become a publisher that is launching multiple games per year. And our path for the next two years is mapped out. And it, I mean, it could change. There could be some slight you know, adjustments, moving things forward, swapping things around. But as it stands today... Our plan is to launch uh, Tanks But No Thanks 2nd Edition this fall. That was the first game we ever launched. There's been a ton of learnings, not only on Kickstarter and building audiences and so forth over the past five years, but also on how to make a game, how to design a game, how to make it look good. And while that game is probably the most played game that we have in our portfolio, is literally produced 30 years ago, um, it is... There's been a lot of things we could change to make it look nicer on the table, right? And and improve the functionality. And if I knew what I know now, when I launched it, I would have launched that game very differently. And we're going to launch the game differently based on our current knowledge. So that's going to come out this fall. It's got everything like a reversible board. So the the, the map is different, whether it's a three-player or four-player. There's going to be a solo mode, autonomous deck, uh, hedgehogs instead of uh, the barriers. Um the, the card artwork's changing, board art, everything's changing to just make it look super cool. It's a really fun game. It's sold out worldwide, our first edition. Uh, it is the most popular title we have, and uh, I think it's going to fare very well. So we're going to launch that this fall. In the spring of next year, the intent right now is to do Nutty Squirrels of the Oakwood Forest, second edition, Burrows. That game will be our current uh, Nice Girls of the Oakwood Forest game, but we're going to include a tree that'll be in the center to build up kind of like Everdale does with their game. And uh, then we'll have burrows that you can go through and navigate as well for some additional cool powers. In the summer of next year, the intent is to do a small box campaign. So as I was saying earlier, your acquisition cost is about $17 a person uh, for Kickstarter. If you have a game that you're selling for $25, you can't afford to do a Kickstarter campaign on that. You're going to lose money. But if you can do multiple small games in the same campaign where people can kind of add what they want a la carte, that is a case where you can actually get the overall pledge value up to the point close to a hundred dollar mark, which makes sense to do a campaign and pay for the acquisition cost. So in that game, the plan right now would be, we'll have planting evidence. We'll have a catnip auction house. 
We're going to have um, a Queen of Scots. Uh, we intend to have, I'm drawing blanks here, uh, Hamsters versus Hippos, Small Box Edition, Time Splicers, which is another game I'm working on right now, Cuts, which is a hair salon game, uh, and uh, and there's one other one we might add depending on, on where it is in the development cycle. So probably about six small box games will be available in that campaign where obviously the more you add to your pledge, uh, the bigger the savings will be. So that'll be in the summertime. And then that'll lead us into the fall of 2024, which by that point, we've already shipped Cities of Venus. And then the follow-up to Cities of Venus, which is Survivors of Venus, will be our next big campaign that we're going to launch in that world. And we're super excited about it. The game's already designed. We've already created the sequel. We've got a prequel actually called uh, Architects of Venus, which is a roll and write uh, designed by Stephen Hill. That game, we're trying to find out where we're going to slot that in. Either is it going to be part of the Survivors of Venus campaign as a physical add-on, um, or maybe what we do is we do like a print and play sometime between now and then to keep people excited about the Seas of Venus world. But ultimately, that's kind of the plan we've got mapped out coming for Tin Roll by Games. Again, I want to thank you so much for being part of this journey with us. Thank you for being part of this podcast. It brings me so much joy every single day. I absolutely love this hobby. I love this community. Everyone is so loving and giving. And if any of you are at Origins, please stop by the Bridge Distribution booth on the Friday and say hello. All the best to you and your families this coming year. Take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.